Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phyllis Gove. I am your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your normal host, Captain Moonlight, who actually killed our landlord and had to go to jail. So uh, I'm here until Captain Moonlight can come back. Captain Moonlight. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that's not the name of your production company, Ashley, just for what it's worth. I mean, we really had a whole list of options. You did. And um, actually, Nate the other day texted me that he's very disappointed we did not go with Shower With My Dog Productions. So, I mean, I'm a little disappointed as well, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah, you know, we probably would have had a better a better visual at the end of the episode we would have had a better a better card but you know well so it, it should be said that with us today for the first time not the first time but the first time in a while alone ashley lyle back uh co-creator co-showrunner of your favorite television show yellow jackets um she's back to talk with us about ron howard's far and away uh, a movie that if i'm being completely honest uh, i had never seen before I had seen bits and pieces of this film. Um, and when I reached out to you, Ashley, this was your number one with a bullet. Like, there wasn't even a question. Oh, absolutely. I saw that list, and I was like, <laughs> well, let's talk about any movie I might do other than Far and Away, because Far and Away is very obviously my number one draft pick. There was there was no question, and I, I was a little surprised, because if I'm being completely honest, and I say this with absolutely no judgment whatsoever... This does not scream Ashley Lyle to me. 
Oh, you're so wrong, though. <laughs> Apparently, I am. I, I And we're going to get into that. That's what I'm excited to talk about. Because it's just not like... Ron Howard's not a guy I associate with you. No, but... <laughs> and that might be fair. Although, I do actually enjoy a number of Ron Howard. As do I. Yeah. But I think... I think there might be a misconception because of all the cannibalism in the show that I'm currently working on. I I actually have a romantics heart. I really do. And so I love a good epic romance. And this has, it has everything. It's got boy meets girl. It's got rich girl, poor boy. It's got the whole fish out of water. It's got the thing where they're going to hate each other until they realize they love each other. What more do you want in a movie? Come on. I, to be, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. When I hit play on this movie, I went into it with a fair amount of preconceived notions, if I'm being completely honest, which was sort of, this movie was a little bit of a punchline in terms of the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman oeuvre, if you will. Um, <laughs> And it didn't do particularly well. We'll talk about that in terms of its its you know, monetary success. But I kind of had this sort of, oh, this is going to be um, a very sort of, I don't know, sweeping. And it is all these things. But I was just sort of like, I wasn't really sure what to expect. And then it was really enjoyable. Like, yeah. I'm not, I, I mean, it, it is... And Emily, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. I know that we're going to talk about Nicole's hair, which is your background. Um, I have like, her hair now. I took it. It's mine. <laughs> <laughs> but I really was pleasantly surprised by how, and I say this with as praise, how Ron Howardy this movie was. Like it is very watchable. It's very charming. It's surprisingly playful and kind of funny and a little silly. Yeah. It's all kind of aware of itself in a way that I found really charming. But Emily, what did you think of Far and Away? This is a dad movie for 12-year-old girls. Like, I don't know any better way to put it. Like, this movie <laughs> is, like, every particular of it from the, like, sweeping vistas yeah. of, like, people racing across Oklahoma to the brief insert shot of some indigenous people being like, well, there goes our land. And you're just like, okay, I guess that's political commentary to the, like, uh, you know, all the, all the, all the action elements and stuff just feels like dad movie, but somehow this movie is like pitch perfect aimed mm -hmm. at the 12 year old girl inside of us all. Mm -hmm. I include non-women in that, that number. Sure, sure. Just like, and that was like, I watched this movie. I think I'd seen like maybe half of it. Cause they split it over two nights on television back in the day. Um, so I watched this movie and was just transported. I just was like, my wife watched it with me and she I was like I don't know how good this movie is and she said but it's great right and I said yes it is yeah. it's it just that thing yeah it may not be good in certain in the certain ways you might categorize a quote-unquote good movie but it is a fucking great movie I actually about maybe a year ago I sat my friend Danny down to watch it because he had never seen it before. And he was like, really? And I was like, no, really? I was like, we are absolutely fucking watching it right this very second. I, I just learned he hadn't seen it. And at the end, he just looked at me and he went, far and away fucking rips. And I was like, yes, far and away fucking rips. Like, it, it also has that quality that I never quite know how to articulate. But it takes you on such a complete journey. Like... 
from the moment that the movie starts to the the final frame, you feel like you've been on a ride. Like you really feel like you've been through it with these characters. It feels like a complete story. And I feel like so many movies don't that are technically good movies don't have that quality. But that's something, you know, a, a movie that always stands out to me as as a number one example of this is Stand By Me. I feel like by the end of Stand By Me, you're like, oh, we've been through it. Like we have been through it with these characters. And yeah, I mean, are any of the plot turns particularly surprising? No, no, they are not. But because of, I think what you were saying, Phil, that it has a little bit of a sense of self, it has a little bit of self-awareness, it's not trying to surprise you. These are not plot twists. And it kind of revels in how satisfying each thing that comes to pass is when it happens. And I, I just love that about this movie. I also just think, and and we've we've said this a couple of times, Emily, in the in the amount of episodes we've done thus thus far, and I'm sure we'll say it again. But like, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't make movies like this anymore. And and part of that is movie stars aren't what they used to be, and you know what have you. But and I'll, I'll read Ebert's review when I get to it. But like, he's kind of dinging this film for uh, not being David Lean, which I think is kind of you know, whatever, fine. But now this is David Lean. Like if we got this movie today, this movie would probably be like heralded as a return to sweeping epics of, of a time gone by. And it does sort of feel interesting to watch this and think like people kind of discarded this movie at the time. But if it did come out today, I think people would be like, this is great. Like, why don't we have these in movie theaters anymore? That Oklahoma land rush sequence now would just all be CG. And like, it's it's beautiful and well done and well staged and all of that. And I just was like, nobody, yeah, nobody's making stuff like this anymore. And when they did, it was Damien Chazelle's Babylon and people got mad at it, you know? (laughs) Like, that is true. That is true. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's obviously an argument to be made for there are still some filmmaker. I mean, you're, you're Chris Nolan's and what have you trying to do movies of this of this scale. But, you know, I was specifically that Oklahoma land rush at the end. I was thinking to myself, and I'm sure you thought this too, Ashley, but like, how did they shoot this? Like, can you imagine shooting that? That's all I said repeatedly <laughs> the last time I watched it was, how the fuck did they do this? Like, how many people died in the making of <laughs> is there a dark backstory to the production that we're not aware of because it's, it's really incredible crazy. and it's the scope of it and the fact that it all that none of it is cg is is really yep. incredible in, in retrospect and then you know obviously jumping again and we will get there yeah, yeah. the choice of how they end it is yeah. just spectacular as far it as it is i mean the the oklahoma land rush for for just for for context 800 extras 400 horses 200 wagons were used to create that sequence um this is also uh the first movie to be filmed um on panavision super 70 millimeter so like and again it didn't get screened on that many screens back in the day but like what this must have looked like in 70 millimeter on a big screen is just you know, it, I don't know. We're, we're just, we need to do this more and we're not. It's a bummer, but yeah. I, I just want to note everything everybody says in this episode. All I can think about is Babylon because it's like, I, no, I was very curious about this movie because we yeah. got to the Oklahoma section and I was like, this feels like it's like 
this you remember those like Disney adaptations of tall tales where they would like do like Pecos Bill or something? I was like, this feels like that. This feels like an adaptation of a story that's already a perversion of a real story. Mm-hmm. And so I like looked into the origins of this screenplay. This is Ron Howard writing fanfic about his yeah. great grandparents. And I'm like, what is a better way to come up with an idea for a movie than writing fanfic about your great grandparents? I mean, it's his dad who's in this film, Ron Howard's father, who would appear in his films periodically from time to time. He plays the guy who sells uh, Tom Cruise the horse at the Mm -hmm. end. Um, And apparently Ron Howard said to his dad, like, I don't want you to be in the land rush sequence. It could be dangerous. And I don't want you to get injured. And as I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like my grandfather did this. I'm going to do this. Like there, there's something really <clears throat> lovely about all of that. It also feels a little blank checky in the sense that, you know, Ron Howard's career up until this point, he had a handful of successful films. He had parenthood and backdraft that predated this film, both of which were quite successful. And he kind of cashes in his chips to make this, as you said, Emily, this, fan fiction of the story of his grandparents essentially um and it's yeah i mean you can't help but sort of feel like you know and i know that the babylon thing does kind of come back into my head in terms of the fact that like damien chazelle cashed in all his chips it's happening for you i mean it's happening but actually have you seen babylon i have not so i'm very so no 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 you're you're we don't need to go there um (laughs) We really, really don't. Uh, I, I I'm just drag that, you into the maw of Babylon discourse. <laughs> Go it's, ahead. It's though. it is just a really um, surprisingly heartfelt, genuine kind of earnest movie um, that works. You know what yeah. I mean? Like this is it's a fine line, and this thing could have tipped into just like maudlin bad shit. Yeah, or or super saccharine. It could have yeah. gotten incredibly cheesy. Yes. And it doesn't, which I think is a testament to the fact that, and I sort of, I, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but, you know, I think that Ron Howard's strength as a filmmaker, and we've talked about this a little bit, I think, Emily, when we were talking about um, uh, Rob Reiner, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. but like the the sort of the TV multicam background that, that Ron Howard has creates a, a levity and a kind of... Um, uh, ability to be able to play with his ensemble in a way that keeps it very light and keeps it from getting weighed down he some of his films don't do this as well but this film i was really surprised by how adorable and charming nicole kidman is in this movie she's great (laughs) and i think you know part of what makes this movie really work is that they really work together in this movie they have and you know there's there's an old adage that you don't want to cast real life couples, generally speaking, because for whatever reason, they tend to have like a very noticeable lack of on screen on screen chemistry. And I don't know if maybe things had already started to go south. I, I don't remember the timeline of the saga of, of Tom mm-hmm. and Nicole, but for whatever reason, they are just sort of on fire together on this screen. Yeah. It's an abundance of chemistry. They're both really likable. I mean, both of them are just an absolute snack in this movie. Like, they're just at their peak powers of, of hotness. And it it also... And they withhold it from us. That kind of makes it hotter, too, right? Like, they really... I mean, I'm not even convinced we see them consummate their relationship within this film. Like, he has a 
dream sequence, I think, of, of like thinking about it. But like they kiss once. Yeah. Which I know that that sounds sort of unforgivably chaste, but for whatever reason, yeah. it it makes it about their love affair as opposed to the sort of sexual component. And it works with the time period. I mean, obviously yeah. we're playing in a time where people weren't just, you know, I guess they probably were. Let's face facts. Humans are humans. <laughs> I, it, and there's, there's an innocence to it. You know, he, despite the fact that he's, you know, he's kind of the bad boy and he's a bit of a criminal willing to do what it takes to, to get what, you know, to fulfill his dreams. And she plays the sort of more prim rich girl who is just dying to break free of the constraints of the societal pressures she's under with her rich family, which is also just a trope that I am a giant sucker for. So I would say, I think you're alluding to something as well that really kind of hit me by the end of the film. And you, you talked about it a little bit about the journey that they go on, but also from like a, a writing and a screenplay perspective, like it really is kind of screenplay 101, but it's done really well. And I really felt them change over the course of the movie. I saw you really see them go from place A to place B and how that arc of their characters changes. It's, it's, it's really well done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. That gets me kicked off the podcast. I don't I don't think they have terribly good chemistry and I think it works for the movie. Does that make sense? Like they if they had consummated their relationship, I don't know if I would have bought it. But the fact that they don't and they just kind of long and yearn for each other, listen, as a queer woman, I fucking get it. But like the 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 thing where like they're just kind of staring longingly at each other, they can play that. Anytime that they're, like, supposed to have that, like, spark where they're, right. like, bantering or bickering, it just kind of, it kind of doesn't oh, work. But the I longing and the yearning is 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 great, and it carries the whole, pros- the whole movie for me. And also Nicole Kidman just, like, can stare at a wall and be like, oh, yeah, she's got it. She's got the yearning deep down. <laughs> See, I, yeah, go ahead, sir. I agree that the yearning is the, the linchpin of what makes this movie work. I I do enjoy the bickering. I mean, when she stabs him in the leg, come on. It's, it's That's great. Good yeah, stuff. <laughs> it's good stuff. I do think, though, the... So, Nicole and Tom were in three films together. Uh, they met on Days of Thunder. They did this film. And then, obviously, infamously did Eyes Wide Shut in 1999. Um, three very different movies. <laughs> um, I, I would argue this is the best weaponizing of their dynamic days of thunder is kind of a mess and eyes wide shut they shouldn't have chemistry and they don't really have chemistry like that's just a whole other thing um this movie i think understands um first of all it understands tom cruise's stardom obviously um and it's i would argue nicole at her most sort of her most watchable, her most charming, like they're really ultimately trying to make her into a movie star. Um, and I think that works to their benefit. I think both of them are really good in it. And and the movie understands their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, but I don't think you're wrong, Emily, in the sense that the longing and the, and the desire and the cat and mouse-ness of it, I think actually works to Tom and Nicole's benefit. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting is that she's really built a career on a certain unapproachability. She has this ethereal quality and uh, there's a, for lack of a better word, a coldness often to her performances that works for her. I, one of my favorite performances of hers is in To Die For. Mm-hmm. And so good. that movie is incredible, but it's also because you can never quite crack her. You can't get inside of her. And I think that Eyes Wide Shut is very similar. I think she, you know, and even today, that's a lot of what she does. And this is one of the few examples I can think of where she actually seems like someone you'd want to have sit down and have a conversation with. <laughs> that sounds mean. And I, I, I'm sure yeah. Kidman is a lovely person or, or maybe she's not. I have no idea. But there, she, this is her most approachable, I think. I agree. I, I, I would also say, too, the movie, the other movie that I thought of as I was watching this, there were two other Nicole Kidman movies, both of them Baz Luhrmann films, but uh, Moulin Rouge and Australia both came to mind in terms of um, she seems like she's having a good time. She mm-hmm. seems like she's actually like enjoying herself, mm-hmm. um, which I think adds to what you're saying, actually, which is that you, you're you're invited into the story. I think that so much of her performances and it's, this is also about how Hollywood never really figured out what to do with her like I actually think she is quite funny in a very specific way to die for even you know I don't think that the um oh my god the um why am I drawing a blank on the the Nora Ephron movie where she's a witch and it's based on the bewitched bewitched which I don't think is a good movie but I actually really find her quite watchable and fun in that movie um I just don't think they ever really figured out what to do with her when it came to comedy um, and in this, I, I found her just really, really watchable. And, and, and it's interesting to see sort of where she goes from here, obviously. Um, I want to give a little bit of context to the people that might not have seen Far and Away. Uh, Joseph, played by Tom Cruise, and his landlord's daughter, Shannon, played by Nicole Kidman, travel from Ireland to America in hopes of claiming free land in Oklahoma. The pair get sidetracked in Boston, where Joseph takes up boxing to support himself. When he loses a pivotal fight, the two are left penniless. Now faced with poverty, the two must find new ways to scrape by. As their affection for each other grows, Joseph questions whether he is truly what Shannon needs in her life. Far and Away opened on May 22, 1992, against Lethal Weapon 3, Alien 3, Encino Man, Basic Instinct, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make $137 million on a $60 million budget. It got 50% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 62 from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film two stars and said, Far and Away is a movie that joins astonishingly visual, astonishing visual splendor with a story so simple-minded it seems intended for adolescence. Watching it, I, I kept remind, I kept being reminded of the childhood childhood of famous Americans books, Emily, which you kind of referred to, in which plucky young people made their way in life. It's depressing that such a lavish and expensive production starring an important actor like Tom Cruise could be devoted to such a shallow story. Do you think audiences have entirely lost their wits? If the late David Lean had not died before he could shoot it, his own planned 70 millimeter epic Nostromo might have been arriving in theaters about now. This is insane. Uh, it would have been a reminder of the lit, uh, literate, thoughtful tradition of such lean films as Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. I, I mean, ultimately, I think he's looking at this through a 1992 lens. I just want to say that yeah, famously, please. Roger Ebert did not like Dr. Zhivago very much. So I think he's just being kind of a piss baby. Yeah. Like that, that's what I'm going to say. That's my diagnosis. Like Dr. Zhivago? 
He said he, he gave it three out of four and was like, this one just doesn't work for me as well as the others. And like, I agree with that take. I don't think it's as good as the other leans, but also, yeah, I think he's being kind of a piss baby. So I think he's probably <laughs> just that. I, so I do have a couple questions for both of you guys. Um, the, the thing that has haunted this film, it seems, is the accent work. Um, <laughs> that seems to be the thing that everyone kind of dogs this movie for. Um, and I don't know that they're completely unjustified. <laughs> Look, are the accents good? No. Are they consistent? Also, no. Did I give a shit? A hundred percent not. I I I threw them and I, I I get it. Those are probably I mean look, I, I also have a tenure for accents. I can't fucking Same. tell half the time. So like I apparently it was interesting because when when Bart and I were working on Narcos, apparently Wagner got like dinged hard for his mm. accent because he is actually um Brazilian. So he didn't speak Spanish. He spoke Portuguese and he learned Spanish for the show. And apparently he has an absolute dumpster fire of a, of a Colombian accent. I'm like, I couldn't fucking tell you that for a million dollars. So like, that's just, that's just me. Like if it, yeah. And there's something sort of charming about it. Like, I don't, I don't know why the bad accents go from distracting to charming for me personally, but they're trying, you know, I, I got to give them points for trying. They're really, they're really doing their best. Sure. It's not good, but they're, they're, they're putting in the old college try. So there's, yeah, I don't, I, I, it didn't bother me either, Ashley, if I'm being honest, but I also don't have um, a personal investment in it. Do you know what I mean? Like if I was an Irish person, I'd be like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is crazy, right? Like I could understand people getting upset about it. Well, for me, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say there, if you think about it, there are only three options. One <laughs> is that they do the thing where they speak with American accents, even they're, though they're supposed to be Irish, which yep. some films just do. They just go, fuck it. We're just going to speak, you know, with our normal accents. And that's distracting. They could have hired some hardcore dialect coaches in which case, we probably would not have been able to understand half of the dialogue because Irish accents are a little tough for an American ear. And the third choice was to do what they did, which was to approximate an Irish accent in just enough of a way that we understand that they're Irish. And so I think that they actually chose the correct path. For me, I agree. this movie is forever linked with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in the sleepover classics category. <laughs> And Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves attempts to do all three accent approaches at once. And it's a colossal failure. Like that was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. And I rewatched it uh, early on and having a baby when I was just watching whatever the fuck I could. And it just did like it just Kevin Costner's accent in that movie is terrible. It's awful and it comes and it goes and so on and so forth. So maybe I was more predisposed to be charitable to this because I just watched that and they're forever like linked in my head. But I honestly think that inherent to Tom Cruise's screen persona is that like he's a little guy who keeps trying to do stuff to entertain you. And every time he tries something, you're like, thank you. I liked that. Good for you. So like, is his accent good? No, it's not good at all. But also he's trying and I appreciate that and I thank him for it. Yeah, I he is this. So 
We've talked a little bit of Tom Cruise, obviously, well, a lot of Tom Cruise on uh, our Few Good Men episode. Mm-hmm. Um, these two films, uh, Far and Away and A Few Good Men, were actually supposed to have inverted release dates. Um, but ultimately, they felt that A Few Good Men had better Oscar chances, so they ultimately swapped them, um, which obviously turned out to be true. But um, his career is fascinating. We've talked about this a little bit, but like, this is him... He, he the only time that I would say he's ever been chasing an Oscar is born on the 4th of July and perhaps Magnolia. This feels like this interesting little kind of he's trying to 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 show that he can do this accent and he can be this guy and he can be in these sweeping epics and what have you. But it also feels like he's a movie star that wants to be a movie star. And those two things do seem to be kind of at odds with each other a little bit in this movie. Um, His Irish accent in interview with the vampire is considerably better uh, because it's a lot more subtle and he doesn't have to go as full tilt leprechaun as he attempts to do in this film. But you know, poor boy, Phil. (laughs) He's not a fancy vampire. You're, you're absolutely right. He is not a fancy vampire in this movie. What if he was? What if like, the last act was just like, I'm a vampire, by the yeah. way. It's actually Lestat's backstory in yeah. this film. <laughs> it's a prequel. Yeah. Would watch. Um, I, I I'll do this is another Tom Cruise question to you guys, because like this movie is trying to get us to buy Tom Cruise as odd, lovable underdog which is not generally something he does, right? Like, he's he's not usually the guy where... He's not usually an underdog, right? And I think he actually does it quite well in this movie, but it is a buy, and I wonder if it worked for you guys as well. Well, I mean, it worked for me because this entire movie works for me. So that's- yeah, sure. But... Sure. <laughs> I think... Okay, this is also a hot take. Mm. I think that his stature, which is sort of infamous actually helps here because he is quite technically the little guy and because of the plot mechanics of him becoming a boxer which is so beautifully okay maybe beautifully is overstating but is i think well set up that you know he's a guy who has a little bit of a temper his his catchphrase is i don't want to fight you or i I can't do the accent i'm not even gonna try but then when he's in these fights, he is quite literally the underdog. So they use that to their advantage. And I think it really helps sell the fact that he is scrappy because he kind of looks scrappy. You know, it's funny you bring that up. This was the first movie that I can think of, quite honestly, where he does seem short or, or shorter than he usually does, right? Yeah. This movie actually shoots him in a way that is not as and he's usually on apple boxes and various other things distinct lack of apple boxes in this film and i salute them for it um i i do think like like there is something about that quality and also the fact that it feels as though they have specifically chosen when he's facing off against his opponents especially they've specifically chosen guys who are really big so he doesn't feel that small but he does feel like especially in the big fight with the the italian which is like all the information we get about that guy it's like 
you know, it is specifically an actor who's chosen to look like the the fucking mountain from Game of Thrones or something. And like, I think that that, I think that that is why, you know, because what's interesting is you mentioned this is a Ron Howard blank check, but like Ron Howard's been hitting a series of doubles. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. he's building up his scale and like how much he can do and how much he can make. But like jumping to this level of production yeah. was like kind of unpre and I do think this is more of a Tom Cruise blank check, and yet he's letting himself show some vulnerability in a way he normally doesn't. So it was like this a thing that he really wanted to do, or was he just enraptured by the story of Ron Howard's great grandparents? As were we all. As were we all. I mean, it it I do wonder about because i'm just i'm looking at the at at ron's filmography here because it does sort of feel like you know um cocoon's a big hit splash is a big hit willow which was a bit of a dud and that was him definitely trying to do something outside his wheelhouse um parenthood which was a big hit backdraft which from a production perspective in 91 all of that fire and it's practical fire it is not you know that shit's pretty crazy so my guess is that he felt like he was up to the task at this yeah. point um but then like right after this he does the paper which is one of my favorite Ron Howard movies and it's super that's one of the great american films <laughs> it kind of is so you know and then apollo 13 like he he does those two back to back and and you know arguably his two best films it does make me the boxing thing you brought up ashley makes me think about as i was watching this film i was like mm, this is why he did cinderella man like he just he just wanted more fucking bare knuckle boxing in his life i don't know it i don't think that ron howard in historical mode is my favorite ron howard and yet this movie really works so take that for what it's worth like i i mean i never saw in the heart of the sea cinderella man is boring i don't know i i mean i i i think there's something I don't want to say there's something modern about Ron Howard because like describing Ron Howard as a modern, like (laughs) just feels weird, but like there is something about him contemporary. That's the word I'm looking for. There's something about him that always feels like he has only existed for the last 10 years. And like it, it's this, yeah, it's this weird quality to him where obviously I think for a lot of people, um, of our generation he's still kind of best known as the arrested development narrator and there is that quality to him where he feels like he's looking at a thing and just kind of dispassionately observing it and commenting on it like he's so i think his directorial strength is he's so good with actors Mm -hmm. and he gets great performances out of them i think the reason you don't make fun of tom cruise's accent in this that much is because he's like guiding him through a performance that feels consistent even when the accent doesn't and and i think that like yeah, but I also think there is something about him that just feels like it's so hard to do that contemporary attitude in a historical milieu. Though He's, I kind of like Cinderella Man, so. I, I mean, that, fair enough. I, I think that Ron Howard is one of those guys, you know, he's a journeyman mm-hmm. filmmaker who's made a lot of movies that people really love. Um, he doesn't really have a style all his own. We talked about, you know, the, the, the Rob Reiner thing is the, is the right comparison, right? Both of those guys have made beloved movies. Um, and yet, if you asked us to like pinpoint what it is about their either visual style or thematics or what have you, you'd be hard pressed to figure that out. Um, they're, they're, they just make really good, you know, lovely popcorn movies. Um, and this, that this fits that mold. I, I do think though that like, 
he seems a little over his skis in this movie at times, just in terms of the sheer uh, size and scope of the movie. And I don't even just mean in terms of visually, but just like the amount of story that's being covered. You know, you, you mentioned actually about like the journey that they go on and you feel the journey. Um, but thankfully you don't feel the running time. This movie didn't feel 220 to me. I don't know if it did to you, Emily, but like, it's pretty breezy, but there's times where there's like hard turns in story that he just kind of breezes past that you're just sort of like, okay, I guess we're here now. You know, yeah, yeah. you're willing to forgive it, but you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of talk, we'll, we'll kind of just, you know, breeze through the journey of Joseph and Shannon here. <laughs> um, but uh I will say the movie opens with this really beautiful crane shot over the ocean and over Ireland as it sort of pulls back. And it immediately, to me anyway, showed like he's he's trying to show off. He's try, he's, he wants to prove to you as a filmmaker that technically he can do these type of things, like from the, from the jump, basically. Yeah. Um, baby Jared Harris shows up. Yes, yeah. um, Emily. I need to point out that Jared Harris and his friend are named like Colm and Patty and a house gets burned down. So the first like 20 minutes of this movie are basically just the Banshees of Sharon, and like <laughs> just like remixed like Ron Howard, you know, people don't often call him a visionary filmmaker, but he absolutely had a vision. Of Banshees of Banshees Banshees yeah. I mean, Brendan Gleeson shows up as a as a bit part deeper into this film as well a very young Brendan Gleeson um I, you know th- I will say that the movies the opening bit for me where like we're seeing Tom Cruise and his two brothers all of which do not look like they're from the same gene pool in any way shape or form um and and their dad gets injured in uh, a tussle with the landlords and all, and then the dad dies, and then the dad comes back to tell his son to chase his dream of getting land. And it, it all kind of, when you say it out loud, you're just like, how did this fucking work at all? And yet somehow this movie kind of opens in a way that works. It does, although I, I would say I, I, I don't feel like the movie is, feels overly long when I watch it. This is probably the part that they could have... <laughs> Taking, taking the scissors to a little bit more because it's yeah. like we get it okay you know he's got an axe to grind that's that's it like he has got an axe to grind and we spend an awful long time learning about that axe and i think that we, we could have sped through it just a hair faster well i think that i agree with you actually and the part that i think could have been truncated a little bit is joseph plotting and trying to figure out a way to get retribution like he wants to essentially kill shannon's father because shannon's father is sort of the 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 main i don't know what you would call like the guy he's the landlord you can he's the landlord okay okay so he's the landlord. i think so yeah yeah it's a great reversal when you think you're setting up a revenge tale yes and then he gets there, and to me, that's when the movie really starts, because, of yes. course, that's when he meets Shannon. But also, the reversal of the landlord being a little bit hapless and being like, wait, what? Like, there's some great kind of almost slapstick comedy totally. 
for him showing up like i'm gonna fucking kill you i'm gonna get revenge for my father and and the guy's like what that's just a really good reversal like i that's when the movie starts to show its true colors and you're like oh okay okay i see what this is gonna be absolutely i mean it, it also feels like it's when the I would argue the tricky tone of this movie really kind of manifests as well, right? Like the 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 lightheartedness that he's trying to infuse in it, which works really well, but is like a real high wire act in terms of like all of the sort of historical elements that are going on. There's like a lot of weighty shit going on here and he's navigating it quite well. Not, not to return to my constant refrain about this being about ron howard's great-grandparents but like it is it does have the tone of when your grandparents tell you stories about their childhood and they're like i grew up in you know the great depression or whatever and we didn't have any food to eat but we had a lot of love and you're like okay um like it does it has that tone and i think that's why it works i absolutely agree with you yeah no i mean like you know as you said it opens with this great sweeping crane shot which Incidentally, I was just having a conversation yesterday about the sort of evolution of, you know, crane shots were the hallmark of an expensive movie. And now with drones, it's like everybody can do a goddamn crane shot. So it's like really kind of lessen the impact of that. But you're starting with this sweeping epic. And then, you know, it doesn't take too long until Tom Cruise punches a donkey. Like that, that's, that's the movie. And you're like, oh, okay, I see. <laughs> that really sums up far and away. The beautiful crane shot, but don't worry. Soon you'll have Tom Cruise punching a donkey. I, I mean, it's it is. First of all, I, I to to piggyback on what you were saying about crane shots uh, versus drones, and I, I I tweeted about this. I don't know six eight months ago or something. But like, you can always tell when it's a drone shot um, because uh, those imperfections that you get from crane shots, um, little shakes in the camera. It's just it's not perfect and these drone shots all feel so perfect that it it they're they're less exciting to watch quite honestly i feel, i feel like this is a tangent but i feel like too often drones are just used to replicate things we already have other you know obviously yes. there are situations where it's just safer and easier and more cost effective to bring in a drone to replicate a crane totally. but like when you got a drone you can go i mean in the film ambulance they can just go crazy with that thing like i feel like people are not yet exploring the real possibilities of just sending drones like flying into people's heads and stuff (laughs) i do think too for for what it's worth as well because like i'm thinking about i'm even thinking about your show a little bit ashley in terms of you have some really beautiful photography of like you know the snowscapes of vancouver or wherever you guys were shooting like so like that stuff Drone shots. It's drone shots. That's right. No, and, 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 and they look great. I don't mean to suggest they don't. But. No, and I mean, you know, obviously that was purely production uh, production dependent. You know, we yeah. were we sent we sent a splinter unit, um, I think I am referencing what you're talking about, but you know, we shot the show in Vancouver, which has some mountains and some snow, but it ain't the Canadian Rockies. And so we sent <laughs> we sent a second unit out to um fortress in alberta to get the actual rockies and you know you can't you take all your equipment up on on snow cats like you cannot take a crane up to the top of a mountain no. in the canadian rockies as it turns out so you know a drone shot is really the only choice you have nor 
did we have the budget to, you know, you know, we're not getting helicopters and shit like that. That's what I was going to say. Like that, that was what we were doing. You know, that's what was done back in the day as well, which is chopper shots. Yeah. Um, which again, had a little bit of an imperfection to them because, you know, you're flying a fucking helicopter. Yeah. Um, but it, again, it's, I mean, listen, most audiences cannot tell the difference, obviously. And, you know, the stuff on your show looked great. So who the fuck am I to say? Wow. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of pinpoint this moment in the film that you're talking about, actually, because it is the moment when, like, not just because you're seeing Joseph meet Shannon, but, like, the film is really kind of locking into the vibe you're going to get for essentially the rest of the movie. Um, Joseph has snuck into the stables. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sees Shannon for the first time. He thinks that she's that she's gone. She throws a horseshoe. Um, uh, the horseshoe, not the subtlest of uh, visual motifs that exists in this film, but uh, she she throws a horseshoe at him. Uh, he thinks she's gone. Whatever. Uh, she stabs him with a pitchfork, essentially in the leg, um, and then feels bad after he attempts to shoot her father and the gun explodes in his face essentially and they bring and and they bring him into the house to kind of nurse him back to health um so i i have to talk about the moment when shannon looks at joseph's dick twice (laughs) talk about this look if we're not correctly selling this movie up until this point if you're not already on board with crazy accents and punching donkeys, then Nicole Kidman surreptitiously checking out Tom Cruise's junk not like twice. twice. If you're not ready to go like rent this on Amazon immediately. I don't even know who you are. Yeah, who are you and what are you doing with your life? But I I I, I do think so just to give a Tom Cruise is is laying prone on this bed with a with a uh, bowl over his junk as um, you do <laughs> and she she's shannon is left alone and so she like sneaks a peek under the bowl and when that happened i was like okay that's funny that's cute going back for seconds is a choice that's what really sells the joke though she looked once it's like oh she's never seen one before the second time she's like it's clear that she's like damn <laughs> <laughs> so as a little bit of behind the scenes apparently what happened was they shot this scene and ron howard didn't like nicole's reaction to what she was seeing under the bowl so she ha- he had tom cruise take off his underwear so that she actually saw his dick <laughs> underneath there and thus you get the 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 reaction that he was looking for which i think is uh you know that that is one of the pros and cons of of uh, of having a husband and wife on set is i guess you can pull shit like that i was going to say they weren't married she shouldn't have been surprised like it should that shouldn't have well, that, gotten the reaction he wanted but you know what i i think it what was more to say the surprise that, yeah. that that the underwear was gone that there but, was yeah. that there was just a dick there yeah, yeah. Okay. or it. it has a conspiracy theory been born yes there it is there it is it's perfect i um so i i want to talk about shannon's my one of my favorite scenes with shannon is she decides she wants to take off Mm -hmm. 
and she there you know she basically posits the the conceit of this movie to tom cruise which is they're giving away free land in oklahoma let's get the fuck out of here let's go to america you can be my servant if you will or whatever because i can't travel alone because i'm a woman and the world's a terrible place um still kind of is and uh she says, I'm running away because I'm modern. I'm very smart and I'm very modern. And I just love how Shannon continues throughout the rest of the film to talk about modernity. She's always like, it's very modern. Or how modern is that? Like, she's just obsessed with modern things, which I just find absolutely adorable. And Nicole Kimmon sells it. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole scene where she sneaks in the window and falls on her way off of the ladder. And like, it's all just really cute. And that's not anything I would associate with Nicole Kidman, which yeah. I think is really lovely. This whole movie is really cute. That's the point. I mean, it really is. It's, mm-hmm. I think. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I, I got this fucking sirens going by. It's because I'm about to talk about Nicole Kidman's hair. And those yes, sirens want everybody to is. know it's, it's some hot stuff. It is amazing. <laughs> it is. I don't know. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how I want it, which is why I've taken it as my ba- Zoom background. I like. You texted me, Emily, last night. Yes. You said. <laughs> Nicole has been on screen for one minute and I have already said, oh my God, three times. <laughs> the hair, like the cost, her costumes are good. Yes. She's got some good ass looks in this movie. <laughs> and I just, I don't even like young Nicole Kidman is, yep. I mean, obviously ethereally beautiful and very sure. charming and a, a winning screen presence. You get why everybody was like, this is a movie star, but just like there is something about that hair that is just, unreal and feels like a special effect in a weird way i don't like i don't even know how to how to describe it like she for me was her and winona Ryder were for me the very formative like sure women i wanted to be i wanted to grow up and have that hair despite the fact that that's not how hair works you're not just going to suddenly develop like a curl like yeah you can't you can't make that happen but it is like she she there's something about just like that is the thing that sets her apart and now of course she you know it's we tweeted a little bit about this and people told us it's apparently a lot of work to have hair like this, which surprising. I would not have expected that. I feel like you just roll out of bed and look like that, but like, yeah, I get why, you know, a lot of these women who become famous for having the curly hair, like eventually kind of let it go. But yeah, 
It is. And I'm sure that, you know, Ashley, you deal with this on your show as well. Wig work is a thing. Um, people don't want to deal with their natural hair um, because it can be a pain in the ass. Um, oh, Phil, I really thought you were going to say that Ashley famously had curly hair before she did. And I was famously. Like, oh, famously. I, I always wanted curly hair. Um, I, I think back to when I was in my early 20s, right after college, I lived in an apartment in New York with two friends of mine, um, both of whom are Armenian. And so they have this like thick, voluminous, wavy hair. And every Friday night, I'd be curling my hair and they'd be straightening their hair. And we were like, no one's happy. Turns out that no one's happy. Um, and I feel like that is just largely demonstrative of, of most women with their hair. Like you're always trying to make it something that it's not. And I think what's so interesting about this is I, I get the impression that obviously the hair department had their hands full with this one, but I think that's, it looks very natural. Like, I, I mm -hmm. think that this is probably just her natural hair. I think she is one of the, the, the lucky few who just has a shit ton of beautifully curly hair. And it, it's sort of symbolic to me of like... Nicole Kidman unshackled like this is her in her truest purest form as opposed to what we were talking about earlier which is the sleek and the, the kind of closed off and I think it really works for the movie but it's also you know it's funny you talk about wig work because there's a ton of it going on in in most productions and some of that is practical in terms of just you know matching things and whatever but it was actually really liberating in a way for me because I've I've always wanted different hair. I've never been happy with my hair. I'm like, Ugh, I've got this pin straight hair that just does nothing. And when I first started working in television, I realized it's like, oh, none of this is real. Like every single actress that you see on screen has some fake shit happening with their hair. Every single one of them, whether it's, you know, just a little bit of pieces put in, whether it's a full wig, whether it's a weave. And it's because humans cannot achieve the perfect hair that film and television have taught us to expect women to have. And it was mind-blowing because I was always just like, oh, I was just born with shitty hair. And then I was like, oh, no, we're all born with hair that doesn't look this good. It's all fake. Like, this is my message to every woman watch, like listening, maybe the guys too. That shit is fake. It is all fake. None of that is real. That is not their hair. Nobody looks like that. I need I need to let people watching this on Patreon know this is also fake. This is a special effect that I'm my hair looks <laughs> like this. We are achieving this through the magic of the cinema. I, you know, it is interesting because I was, I, as Emily alluded to, I tweeted yesterday, you know, that I miss Nicole's curly hair. And it does seem as though so much shit is being done to her hair that I don't even know what it would look like if she just let it, like, would it go back to this? I don't know. Um, but it does feel as though, because I was trying to figure out, like, when did she stop? Like, her natural hair is in Days of Thunder. It's in Flirting. It's in Dead Calm. Um, it's obviously in this. And then Malice, it's still curly. My Life, it's still curly. I think it's Batman Forever. That's the moment when everyone's like, so she has to have straight hair now. Um, if she's going to be in a Batman movie, if she's going to be in something this whatever. Um, and then it's it, ultimately, it's not really curly ever again. I mean, it's a little curly in Portrait of a Lady, the, the Jane Campion film. 
Um, but yeah, it, it's, and I do wonder, and it was sort of alluded to a little bit on the tweets that we were tweeting about, but like, is there something kind of uh, not desirable about curly hair? Like, do, is, is there something aesthetically, I don't know enough about women's hair, but. I think for a long time, you know, straight hair, which speaks to all sorts of sort of socio-political and normative bullshit about, you know, the way women are supposed to look. What I think is interesting is that, um, and I am not a big user of, you know, social media, TikTok and, and Instagram, but I am loosely aware that there is a really embrace your curly hair movement going on now. There's like oh, nice. all these videos about like, you might actually have curly hair because I think women are just always brushing it out and straightening it and doing all this stuff. So there are all these videos now for how to take care of your curly hair and it involves all sorts of things like you don't brush it, you scrunch it and you put stuff in it. And I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I like almost because they'll be like, oh, look, you know, they'll do these begin, you know, before and afters. And it's somebody who's like, I never knew I had curly hair. And then they go through the process and they have this gorgeous mane of curly hair. And I was like, could I? I was like, no, I know I don't have curly hair. Like there is no magical thinking or process that is going to make my hair curly. But I wonder if they're, if we're going to start seeing more natural curls on screen because there is this sort of free the curl movement going on in sort of social media culture i do yeah go ahead i I do kind of think there is this this coded thing in our culture because we are talking about a lot of socio-political things obviously Mm -hmm. uh, especially around around race and gender normative behavior but there is this thing where curls are sort of associated with youth and then when you become an adult, you no longer have like, like Taylor Swift is obviously the famous example of this, where she like has a bit of natural curl. She overcurled when she was a teen, then she like over straightened. And if you like look at her in the era when she, everybody's quarantined at home, she has slightly curly hair and you're like, oh, okay, that's what it actually looks like. Or famously like Ariana Grande, um, all of the, the the long ponytail thing is like extensions, which is very, I, when I found that out, I was gutted and hurt. Like I was like, I felt lied to, but like, I, I have a little bit of wave in my hair from my grandfather. And like, it's, it is this thing where like, yeah, if I really like tried to like take care of it, um, you know, I probably could enhance that a little bit, but also like, there is this thing that feels like it is very, you know, teens, twenties about this, this hair. And I don't know what that is in my brain. It's probably something well, I made up. I'll say this too, as someone with curly hair, um, I, uh, it's a fucking pain. You gotta grow ass. it out, Phil. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta grow it out. You gotta get it nice and Emily, nice and luxurious. We start like a real, um, I don't want to say bullying, but, um, a peer pressure movement to get, <laughs> his hair out because i've seen pictures of phil in his youth and i really think he's missing an opportunity here to to get a little wild with his hair i, I, I had it. i had a a mushroom cloud of curls on my head when i was younger that um that listen uh I don't think I could do, but today, but I, I, the reason I bring this up and I don't want to get too in the weeds on this because I don't want to seem like a a pseudo intellect, but I do think that there is something to be said for kind of the control that you can have over straight hair. Um, Curls are unwieldy. I mean, her hair in this movie that we're, you know, Nicole's hair in this movie is stunning 
and as you alluded to, Ashley, uh, somehow is being controlled in some form or another, but seems completely like unwieldy. Um, and that that sort of adds to this kind of, as Tom says about her character, uh, the corker quality of her in this movie is this sort of, you know, trying to contain her curls um, and trying to contain, you know, whatever society is saying she needs to do and not do. And I do feel as though that might also speak to why we don't see more people with curly hair, that it, it feels like people want to control that shit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great that it works as a narrative choice in this film yes. because I, clearly were she to be doing all the things that her family expects of her and society expects of her and to be, you know, a proper young woman who's just going to get married and et cetera, she would have her hair in a beautiful chignon or whatever. Sure. And, you know, so it, it really is a, a storytelling choice that... Yeah. <laughs> fuck that like i'm gonna let this shit go mm-hmm. and um and and it's glorious and again a selling point for those who have not seen this movie like you gotta see her hair come on you gotta see her hair it's amazing the, the trick the trick of any period piece is creating a thing that feels like the past without with with also all also without alienating the present sure and it's so you know like I would guess that uh, there were very few women who looked like that in 1890s Ireland, um, even just on all sorts of levels. Because of course they have Holly, uh, Nicole has Hollywood styling and all these things. But like, sure. you also can't overcorrect in such a way that people are like, "Well, this looks like 1992." It's this really delicate balance that I find sort of fascinating anytime I watch a, a, a period film. I think that you know you're you know you're also speaking to sort of the stuff i was talking about a little earlier too of that like finding that colloquial little corridor that exists to make this film feel accessible to a modern audience yeah and you know it's it's tough it's not easy even even returning to the accent stuff like nicole doing that irish accent is apparently uh not uh accurate she would have had a a, like a english accent but like people were like that would be too confusing so she's just gonna have an irish accent like it works like that's absolutely what what the movie needs so well it always bums me out a little bit when people get too nitpicky about anachronisms in historical films because you know the fact of the matter is is you don't really want that do you want to see what their teeth would have looked like you know we could make this as accurate (laughs) as possible and you're not going to want to look at that on your screen let me tell you so you know it's always finding that balance between movie magic and making it feel like a movie but you know just having enough authenticity that you're along for the ride it's i mean that's it's the thing that even to this day titanic still gets dinged with and you're just like guys come on like the thing the thing where they could both fit on the door and they no, don't cry i just i mean you know the you know it, hawk and a loogie uh back then was probably not a thing um i mean there are just things that people want to get all sort of i mean it, it it even goes as far as like it not getting a best screenplay nomination everyone just being like it's it it is almost hilarious to think that you want to you really want to put this movie under a microscope like what's lovely about this movie it's a big fucking sweeping epic old style like just enjoy it enjoy the love story enjoy the context a thing a thing that i've learned writing a bunch of stuff that's set in various periods from you know the podcast to my novel to all these things is when you go in and research what terms how they evolved they exist way longer than you think they did. Mm-hmm. Like we did an episode of um, podcast, like it's 1999, where I talked with you and Kenny about how 
like the term, like text messaging was invented in 1992. Nobody would ever think that, you know, like it is, it is this thing where stuff exists long before you think it does. And like people getting hung up on anachronisms, often they aren't anachronisms. And most of the time, just like, shut up, just take it easy. It's okay. It's fine. We get, we get a fair amount of dinging on our show for things of this nature. I always, you know, and it, it's like, you, you, you don't engage. There's no winning when you engage, but I want to be like, first of all, we did do our research there. There was something, I can't remember what phrase it was. It was some form of a curse word that we actually researched and, and found out that it, it originated in like World War II, but people are like, people didn't say that in the 90s. I'm like, people have been saying that since the 40s, so excuse yeah. you. <laughs> and, you know, there's just, and then sometimes you're like, it's a fucking show. Will you all calm down? Like, you know, yes, we could be even more accurate. There are certain things where we have certainly taken liberties, but I'm like, it's because we're trying to tell a story and, you know, you want to strike that balance where you're not taking people out of it. But sometimes I'm like, yeah, this is not a documentary shot in real time, you guys. Like, just calm down a little it's, bit. Yeah. I mean, there's no winning. There's just people that want to complain about things and want to find, you know, and, and, and want to seem smarter than the thing. So they want it's, – it's, it's annoying. And I, and I do think that this movie, um, to its credit, feels like it's not – particularly interested in that right like there's 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 a historical accuracy that exists to a certain degree but ron howard wants to take people on a, on a journey and just wants them to have fun and i think that i would argue that might be the movie's greatest strength or one of its greatest strengths is that sort of not trying to get into the weeds on that sort of shit um so whatever i i, I want to talk for a second about okay so there's Can a I seat Yes, please. Can I ask just one question on this? Do we think that people got more upset about this because of the internet? Do we think that the internet has now made it where everybody can research every oh, little yes. thing about everything? And like, and also, or quote we're, unquote, research. The internet isn't like, fucking real half the time. And re, when you read the Ebert quote, it does sound like he was like, well, this isn't real on some level. So like, obviously, like people had that thought in their brains all the time. But the internet does make it so much easier to just go and like read a Wikipedia article and pretend you know everything about far well, and away, and, and which also, is what I have done. And also gives you that much more of an opportunity to be able to voice it, right? Like yes. it's one thing to be able to find it. It's another to be able to fucking like get on your stupid, you know, Apple box and complain about it or soapbox. Um, so I wanted to talk about there's a scene where uh, Shannon, they're, they're, they're both going to sleep and Shannon turns to Joseph and says, essentially like, am I beautiful? And and Joseph says something like, I've never seen anything like you before or something to that effect. And just when you think that these two are, she turns around, just when you think that these two are actually going to like fucking do this already, um, she turns around to go to sleep. He gets up and races to go box. Like, I love the idea that he, that literally boxing is to fight the urge to want to have sex with Shannon, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, he can't contain it. <laughs> That's how I just think it's. I just think it's great. It is. It's very romantic. <laughs> this stuff, this stuff when they're like sharing a room is, I think, when the movie's at its hottest. Like the movie is at its most romantic. There's the most sexual tension, especially mm -hmm. that scene where they're like looking at each other through the mm -hmm. the, the curtain. Well, it's that's, like and and him teaching her how to clean the clothes too, which is yeah, like yeah. You know, 
and like it's all you know you're lifting a lot of that from like it happened one night but like there's a reason that 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 shit works i mean it's it's a classic so no i mean when he's yeah there's a scene that emily is leading to where basically uh they're both getting undressed to go to bed it it actually pre it's it's right before she asks him if if uh, she thinks Mm -hmm. if he thinks she's beautiful but like there's the little kind of they're looking at each other through these little slits and little sort of they're getting pieces of each other, um, which is, again, sort of, you know, you were talking about this, uh, uh, Ashley, of like the slow build, the slow burn of their relationship, uh, again, speaks to why this movie works. I think if you rush through that shit, which so many movies do, mm-hmm. it would work. Yeah, no, I think that there is a very Jane Austen quality to totally the way that they portray the romance and as we all know Jane Austen was like you know erotic literature for 12 year olds so it it very much works in that respect because yeah I mean what's hotter than just getting that glimpse and he's trying to see but can't quite he doesn't want to admit that he's trying to see but she it's reciprocated and it's just so much hotter than if they just like got naked in front of each other absolutely and and it it also I, what speaks to their, and we kind of breeze past this, but when he is her servant for the journey to America, that also creates this poor boy, rich girl thing of, you know, the whole caste system and, and the Romeo and Julietness of not being allowed to be together because society has said you can't be together, um, which I think also fuels all of this. Um, we, we, we kind of also, I didn't mean to breeze past it, but like they do come to America and, and Shannon has her spoon stolen. Um, so she doesn't oh my have God, the fucking spoons. Oh my God. The spoons. The spoons. When she screams my spoons, my spoons, I felt it. It's so, it's so silly, but it's again, silly in the way that feels like a, like a family story that's yeah. been passed down through the years and just like. It's Nicole Kidman screaming my spoons. What more, <laughs> more do you want from film ever? Exactly. But exactly. I mean, it's it essentially from the second they step foot on, on American soil, it all kind of goes to shit on them, right? Like yeah. the, her spoons are stolen. The guy that was going to help her get shot. Like it's all just, it all kind of goes, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, it's such an accurate depiction of America. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> hundred percent you know that that part is a documentary shot in real um no i mean you know what's so great about you know as you said the sort of romeo and juliet the the rich girl poor boy and then when they get to america you know their roles really reverse and now all of a sudden she's the fish out of water you know you do him as the fish out of water when they're at her family estate and then you flip things and all of a sudden she's completely lost her footing he knows how to get by um i look i've said it before and i'll say it again Titanic is just far and away on a boat. <laughs> if you love Titanic, but you wish that everyone didn't die, then definitely watch Far and Away. It's it's basically the same movie, but they don't all die at the end, which is, I think, you know, a, a, a happier way to um, launch into the rest of your day after you. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with you. Um, and, and it's funny, and I tweeted this, obviously, I said that you said that, and, and I agreed. It, it is, there's just something so solid that works about this thing, like this framework, this idea of, 
you know, right side of the tracks, wrong side of the tracks, the, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a reason why, and, and I guess this is all just kind of a long way of saying, I'm bummed that we don't have this more now. Like, why hasn't someone figured out another historical place for us to be able to do this again? Because it fucking works. And why wouldn't you want to watch it? I Yes, Emily, sorry, go ahead. Didn't they keep trying to make a Hindenburg movie after <laughs> Titanic? And like, there was like a star cross. Like, well, here's the thing. Like, they made Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was like, we're going right. to do Titanic again. And then like, yes. it was fun. Like, it made money, but it was not a smash hit. Yeah. I think there's just sort of this this idea that like, this kind of thing is lightning in a bottle you can't capture. But like, I don't know that that's true. Like this is the, yeah. the, the bedrock of Hollywood is making these enormous epic love stories that have like sweep and vista to them. Yeah. And I don't know, it's time to, it's time to make another one. It's yeah. also, I mean, now with CG stuff, like you basically can do whatever the fuck you want. Like this, this movie is such an undertaking because of what it was attempting to do back in 92. And I do think that we lose, we've lost a tactility to this from CG that like affects the elements of romance even, you know, it's, it's weird. It's like, you need to have that feeling that like you can reach out and touch the movie to have the romance work. And yeah, I agree. I I mean, I do think um, there's a scene. So essentially uh, Joseph becomes, I mean, starts to make more money than Shannon through his boxing. They were both working at a a, a chicken plucking factory. Is that is that the right way to, to describe it? I believe that is deadly accurate, yes. Okay. <laughs> Just That's making it. sure. Um, which which also felt like not to keep belaboring this point, but this movie has a specificity to it, but also um a universality which is a very tough thing to do so like the specificity of this chicken plucking factory did make me go like yeah i guess i guess someone had to do that i guess someone might still have to do that i don't even you know what i mean like and and it it felt very like just seeing nicole kidman uh with having feathers all over her her coat when she leaves work every day like just what she's going through and joseph is making more money than her so he's buying a whole bunch of hats which I guess is, is what you do when you have money. <laughs> when you have money, you want to just wear a bunch of hats on top of hats. You can just be like, look at all my hats. <laughs> but I love the scene when he picks her up and throws her in the bathtub and says, can you just say you like my hats? Can you just say you <laughs> like my hats? And it's really, I, I think it's a lovely scene because it's the first time that you really sense joseph's insecurities like really sense how important it is to him that shannon likes him yeah no it's like he's doing all of this whether he knows it or not to impress her and she is in such a place of having been humbled in a way that she's completely unaccustomed to both of their egos are bumping up against each other when really they just love each other and it's ah, so delicious but just it's so charming that the fanciest thing he can think of is hats. It's, hats. it's great. It's great. I love this. It's also, you know, um not to go back to the Tom Cruise thing, but for a brief second, I, I you don't see this side of Tom Cruise much. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see him um weak i guess is the best way to describe it you don't see him as someone who's insecure um which is so lovely to see uh he's really good at it there's there's a lack of vanity 
in his performance and in his character here that is very uncommon for him. I feel like you just, there was a certain point, and I think it was really after Magnolia, and I think we may have all talked about this, where he Mm -hmm. clearly decided, fuck it, I'm just going to be a cool guy now. I am just in perpetuity going to be a cool action hero Mm -hmm. who always knows the right thing to do and runs like the wind and hangs out of airplanes And I think it's a shame because I think that in his earlier work, when he was willing to play somebody who could be made a fool of or somebody who had, you know, there's a lack of, like I said, vanity to the the part of Joseph that creates this very human vulnerability. And I think that he has somehow managed to create an entire career based on someone who doesn't quite seem human, which is fascinating in its own right. But he feels like a real person in this movie. And, and yeah, there's just something so charming about seeing Tom Cruise have his ego bruised or want so badly for somebody to accept him or admire him. He's looking for respect. And I feel like that respect is just a given in his entire past 20 years of, of filmmaking. I think there's also something, not to, not to you know, uh, psychoanalyze him, but... I do think there is something to the fact that this role and Eyes Wide Shut are with his wife and he is allowing himself to go there with someone that obviously is very close to him um, and is willing to sort of allow himself to seem perhaps slightly less secure um, in her company. And, and like, it's why that scene of him throwing her in the bathtub and saying, like, just say you like my hats. It just, <laughs> it feels... And the that way was a looking- documentary that actually happened. <laughs> Ron Howard happened to capture it. And- yeah. But the looks that they're giving each other, and I don't know if it's projection, and I don't know if it's because we know that they were married and all that kind of stuff, but like they are really vulnerable in a way with each other that you don't see him do kind of with anybody else in the same way. Yeah. Um, which I think is really special. Uh, and it is kind of lightning in a bottle. I, I mean... There, there is kind of this whole, there's like these whole shenanigans with like, she's a burlesque dancer and there's like a, he gets sucker punched and loses a fight and they lose all their money and they're basically thrown onto the street um, and they're starving and homeless and they break into a home that they, that they think is uh, empty and they pretend that it's their house and that they're married and that they're in love. It's a really nice scene. It's really sweet. And it's like strangely gothic. It's like all of a sudden yes. the movie yes. swerves into great expectations in a, yes. in a unexpected way. Doesn't stay there for that long, but just long enough. It is a Christmas movie. So <laughs> that's good. It's a Christmas. Um, you got your Christmas tree, Emily. Was this happen? Like, I feel like there's a lot of stories that are like, and then they broke into someone's house and pretended <laughs> it was theirs. Was this happening a lot in the like late 19th, early 20s? Is that like a thing people did I for guess fun? It was a thing. I don't know. No ADT. So I guess, you know, there are no ring cameras. <laughs> so maybe. also, I can't, you know, yeah. I, you know what? Why would I even pretend I know? I have no idea. But I, I like. I like to think it happened like on the reg. Yeah. It's just, I, I think that um, you're absolutely right that it has this kind of Dickensian vibe when they're in this house. Um, it's, it's shot with this sort of like cold kind of blue. Um, they're very gaunt. They're obviously, they haven't eaten anything. They both look 
quite sickly. Um, and it's shot like through this in front of this like beautiful window. And there's like this, it all just feels very sort of um, what's eluding them, right? Like what, what is sort of just outside their, their reach. Um, and they kiss finally, <laughs> like two hours into this movie, they finally kiss. Um, and then Shannon gets shot by the owners of the house. Um, so uh, Joseph takes her to her parents, which he has deduced have been kind of following them or trying to figure out where they are or something to that effect. Thomas Gibson's in this movie as well. He's like basically the villain, um, Greg of, of Dharma and Greg. Tom, Thomas Gibson is playing the Billy Zane in Titanic in this movie. In every particular. He's far and away on a fucking boat. It's <laughs> He really is playing the Billy Zane role. It's uh, <laughs> when, Tom, when Thomas Gibson turned up, uh, my wife said, wow, Dharma really got him to chill out. And like, that is the, <laughs> this feels like the Dharma and Greg prequel in some way. Anyway. Um, he's also in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, amazingly, weirdly. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's, I think Thomas Gibson is good in this, but I don't know that like, I don't feel, and this is again a testament to Ron Howard and kind of the dials. No one ever becomes a caricature. They come really close at times, but they never tip over. And I feel like uh, Chase, I believe is the character's name, is sort of villainous, but also kind of like goofy and kind of like you don't take him all that seriously. He doesn't seem like a real threat. Like when they have their their almost duel. Which I completely we completely skipped over the fact that there's almost a duel in the middle of this movie. <laughs> I almost forgot about it. That's how many things happen in Far and Away. I mean, his character is, let's face facts, irrelevant. Yes. Like utterly irrelevant. This is really just symbolic of the fact that Joseph loves Shannon so much that he's willing to let her go because he has convinced himself that that is her path to happiness. It is. There, it's it's an implied class struggle that the movie then does nothing with because it sort of buys into the myth of in America anyone can be anything they want and your class can be improved and all of this stuff because it has to because it's a story about Ron Howard's grandparents and like I'm sure that was foundational to their myth but like it yeah it is this it, the class elements are a weird thing to include in this movie because it largely ignores them until it needs them to juice the story and you're like oh right they're supposed to be like different class levels or something but they lose they lose the spoon so quickly that like it just you know it goes out the window yeah yeah so i mean the, the thomas gibson thing is interesting um he became the most interesting to me at this point in the movie when uh joseph takes her to the house and um because he knows that she needs obviously medical attention and and the way chase looks at joseph is you know he he feels like how did you let this happen to her type thing like there there is this kind of dynamic there of chase having genuine feelings for shannon like it doesn't feel like she's property to him which is something that's more billy zane in titanic um this there's actually like some layers to chase um but then they kind of throw that away at the end but um they give him some layers for a second until you know the 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 race to oh there's a baby 
that is a, a baby has entered the chat. She loves screens so much. She loves to see the people that live in the computer. It's her favorite thing. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So basically we're now kind of, we are in Oklahoma. Um, Joseph has been working on, on the railroad for a bit and then decides that, you know, it's his destiny. He remembers his father's wishes and all that. Um, and and sort of it all kind of dovetails and crescendos uh, in Oklahoma. Joseph buys a horse from Ron Howard's dad. Uh, turns out that horse is really old and dies on him. Um, I do love the man who says that there is the oldest horse I've ever seen. <laughs> I laughed. We, we, we laughed a very long time at, at the old horse. Um, so then, so then Joseph has to um, uh, essentially buy a uh, an untamed horse, um, which creates all sorts of pandemonium uh, when the actual um, uh, land race begins. So I I, I want to talk about this this land race for a second because this is the it feels as though, and again, I don't really remember this film in '92. And Ashley, did you see it in '92? Oh, I sure did. It was, I, I as, love that as so Evelyn much. said, this was like sleepover fodder in a big Okay. I, I guess what I, what, I, what I mean to say is I remember this film that this was the big deal about this film. Like the, that the land rush was the thing and look at what we're going to do and look at what we're attempting to, you know. And it still has the power of that which I think is really impressive. Like you watch that now. And as we mentioned earlier at the top of the podcast, like it's pretty gobsmacking. Mm-hmm. Like there, there are, I want to say anywhere from seven to 10 shots that you just go like, how? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I honestly don't know how they pulled it off. Some of that looked so incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, obviously, standards for safety a little bit different back then. Yes. Not sure you could come close to pulling that off now. No. Um, but it is, it has, I think because it's real, it has this visceral quality where you just, you just get so wrapped up in it. Like the stakes feel incredibly high. It's very exciting, even though, you know, some part of your brain has a sense of what might actually come to pass here because you've watched the whole movie. And yet, somehow they find a way to make the inevitable genuinely exciting, which I think is a testament to Ron Howard's ability to to create a really good set piece. I absolutely agree. I also, I'm sure you felt this way too, Ashley, watching it this time, but I had not seen it, but the, the... On set person at times, like my my heart was in my throat thinking about like this this looks like people were actually injured. Like there, there's things that are happening. You're just like that doesn't that doesn't feel okay. I don't. <laughs> yeah, and what's great too is that even though it feels genuinely dangerous, it feels genuinely exciting. They still pepper in moments of levity. You know, with her parents, <laughs> oh yeah, cheating and. You're kind of like, all right, you know, this kind of makes sense. But I'm kind of rooting for them, too. I'm like, just get your little plot of land, you 
silly rich people. <laughs> like it just, oh man, it's, it's so exciting. It's so good. You know, what's going to happen. You don't quite know how they're going to get there. And then, and then of course you get to the last moment, which when I watch this movie and stay with me, the thing that always pops into my head is Butch Cassidy. Sure. Because they both culminate in what I, I don't think it's, they don't actually freeze frame it or do they? I don't, they I don't, don't freeze frame it. Yeah. They might as well. And so it's like, much like Titanic, if you love Butch Cassidy, but you don't want everyone to die at the end, watch Far and Away. Yeah, you just you know if if you want to just forget about the dust bowl that's coming in a in a you know in a <laughs> you don't want to think about the Great Depression that's right around the corner. <laughs> yeah, they got, got a good forty years. Yeah, they got a good forty years. I, 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 you know, it is interesting um, to your point, Ashley. How in my head I'm like, well, the last shot's got to be them planting the flag, right? And it's so fucking satisfying. <laughs> so satisfying and they don't do anything else like you think you're gonna see a little they're just like boom credits, credits. <laughs> they're like we're out there's nothing else to say it's, it's I'm, great i'm amazed there's been like multiple films that use the oklahoma land rush as like a big set piece and like i get it like it is it is a race against time it's a it's a huge race against other people but like there is something sort of dramatically inert about it because it's just like, well, you either get there or you don't. And like <laughs> this movie, this movie does find a way to sort of, I think it is just mixing in all these characters who've been involved in the film and they all have different takes on it. And every time Robert Prosky, who plays Nicole Kidman's dad, wanders into this movie, he looks like he's playing the mayor in a production of the music band. And you're like, good, th- I love this guy. I'm so glad he's here. But like, yeah, like the way that it blends all these characters in is, I think, why it works. And like, you know, in ways when it kind of shouldn't almost. I do have to say when Tom Cruise comes back to life because Nicole Kidman says she loves him. So it's a little cheesy. It's a little, just a little cheesy. Just a little, but like. That is perhaps the understatement of this podcast so far is. inordinately cheesy but because you've gone this whole way you just you're like yes 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 come back i i also think that because they kind of do it with the dad at the beginning it's their way of kind of rounding the edges off of the cheesiness a little bit i also think too like I don't know. I'm a sucker for the shot that that, this beautiful fucking crane shot that pulls up into the sky of her begging for him not to die. And then it's this crazy fish eye that like zooms in on him as he comes back to life. Um, It just, it just works because it's, it feels of a piece of the movie, right? Like it doesn't feel as though the movie has, uh, is cheating you in any way. If anything, it's giving you exactly what you want and have been begging for this entire time. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's it's really uh, it's great, and it, I mean, I, I think that the the fight with Chase is a little bumpy for me, just because it's uh, it, it's kind of I know it's a means to an end, but I kind of wish that it didn't get as kind of mustache twirly at the end. But whatever, like it is what it is. I, I mean, it, it works, and and to your point, um, Ashley, smashing to the end is just like. 
It's it's a statement. It's like there's nothing else to say. Yeah. Like they could have easily gone the route of then a time cut and you see yep. them building their cabin. Yep. Or you, yep. See, yep. you see the children running through the yard and they were like, no, no, we are done. They got <laughs> the fucking land. It is over. Use your goddamn imagination. And I respect it. I respect it too. Although I look forward to um, your sequel series, your limited sequel series to Far and Away on Disney Plus, uh, where you tell the story of, uh, of of Joseph and Shannon. Oh, don't tempt me. Can, <laughs> well, can I? Disney. Can I make it? Go ahead. <laughs> I have I have a pitch for a sequel series, which is <laughs> it's it's the Fablements, but with Ron Howard. <laughs> it's just like his story from you know yes, sure, birth to. Sure. Yeah. yeah, birth yeah. to he ma- him making the far and away. Oh, I thought you were pitching a behind the scenes limited series of Ron Howard making far and away. <laughs> no, no, it's just it's it's far and away to the Ron Howard years. So um, I want to uh, rate this film, Ashley, and then perhaps get your thoughts on what we're covering next week. Um, so I had not seen this film in '92. Uh, I came into this podcast at an 80 and I'm, I'm going up. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to 87. I think this movie's, I think this movie is actually great. I, I, you know, I, it will not surprise Ashley to know that I went into this perhaps a little cynical um, <laughs> and, and a little jaded and, and unsure as to what I was about to uh, partake in. And I was so pleasantly surprised that it was a genuinely great, like uh, uh, just, you know, a great movie that they don't make anymore. So it's a great movie. Far and away rips. That's- Far and away rips, as they say. <laughs> um, what, uh, Emily, are your thoughts on Far and Away? What's your rating? Uh, Got to do the, the, the queer phobia scale. And yeah, honestly, please. this movie's fine on that regard. I'm going to give it a three. Cause again, you know, all these people are queer phobic, but like, it's not, it's not a 10. It's uh it's yeah, it's a three. Uh, I'm giving okay. the fact that my baby vomited all over me just now. Like I'm giving that like a one, but uh, <laughs> far and away, I came in at like a 73, 74. I was like, this is good. It's you know, if I were being a wholly like objective critic, I would hold some things against it, but we're talking about it. You know, I went into this movie having remembered seeing, seeing part of it as a kid and being like slumber movie class, slumber party movie, classic, and comparing it to Prince of Thieves in my head, because Prince sure. of Thieves, I think, is a much worse movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I watched it. I was really pleasantly surprised talking about it. I'm even more. I'm going up to an 80. I think this, yeah. is, a, this is a fun little movie. I enjoyed it. Ashley, 99 in 92, I assume. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I probably would have given it a 90, a 97 when I was 12, just because there probably were a few things that went over my head. Sure. Um, and watching it now, and I, I, I feel like this is a slightly inflated score, but if it's inflated because it's just squarely in the wheelhouse of things I love, I think that that's valid. And I'm giving it a 91. I fucking love this movie. I really do. Like, oh, yeah. There are there are not many movies this long that I have seen this many times, and <laughs> as soon as I find out that someone hasn't seen it, and I think that's one of the beauties of this film too, is it's one of the few really good movies that a lot of people haven't seen. That is true. That and, is very true. And there's something like I I personally I think I'm adding some points for the fact that it gives me a chance to say what the fuck do you mean you haven't seen Far and Away? Sit down, we're watching it right now. I I, I was, was the, week. 
was this all just an attempt to get Phil to watch Far and Away? Was that the yeah. whole This plan? whole thing. This yeah. whole podcast is really just that. This entire podcast has been a long con. Um, Kenny and I talked years ago. <laughs> and it finally paid off. And, and this is just an example that if you truly follow your dreams, they will come true. I mean, I am, I am so, uh, I'm so happy that I liked it. I, I'm so happy that I liked it. Oh man! I mean, we were gonna have words, Phil. Like, we, I this know, a very different episode. Had you not liked the film, it would have gotten like really <laughs> It was. I mean, I, I, I was so relieved more than anything. I was just like, thank God, I liked this movie. I mean. I don't know if I should be offended by this. No, no, no. I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean it just in the sense that, like, I, I knew how much you liked this movie, and I knew that it was genuine, right? And I didn't, I didn't want to be like a fucking film snob about it and just turn into, you know what I mean? So I was just happy that, like, I found it a, a genuinely enjoyable experience. Like, I was just happy about it. But um, so next week, I don't know if you've seen this movie, Ashley, but I feel like maybe, maybe you. So we're covering Poison Ivy next week. The uh, the Drew Barrymore movie where she um, plays a like a, a a a young girl at a private school. And have you heard of this movie? Do you know what I'm talking about? I've heard of it, and I think there is a shot that I have seen some part of it, but I definitely okay. have very little recall. And I think in my brain, I'm already confusing it with the babysitter. Sure, and that's fair. Um, it's, it, her, yeah. this was the reason that I wanted to get your, your thoughts on this is because, and Lola Kelly is coming on to talk about this film. Um, Emily has read the, the synopsis and said, I'm so her. excited. It sounds <laughs> so my jam. It sounds so bad. I uh, love it. Yeah, it does. It doesn't, it, it's what I kind of wanted to hone in on here is this is around the time when Drew Barrymore is sort of, um, she's in kind of trashier things and like there's this kind of you know she's flashing david letterman and like there's just kind of this um that kind of moment for her that she sort of navigates out of by the late 90s and i guess i'm just sort of like you know this movie was nominated for the grand jury prize at the sundance film festival um but like it's it's part of this kind of erotic stuff that's happening in the early 90s that essentially is shepherded out the door by the end of the decade Mm -hmm. um and i guess i'm sort of curious as to like you know we're obviously the same age Mm -hmm. and all you know your basic instincts your hand that rocks the cradle so single white female all of these are coming out in 92 and i'm sort of sorry what was that fear 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 sure I'm I'm curious as to what sort of like teenage Ashley thought about all of that stuff at that time. I I guess what's interesting is a lot of it passed me by. I think I'm okay. a very specific age where, you know, in the very early 90s, you know, between 90 and 93, I was 10 to 13 years old. Yep. And so I was not allowed to watch these movies well it it really depended because my dad would let me watch fucking anything my mom was the one who was like a little more like i don't know if that's appropriate viewing for you and it's funny because i did watch a lot of kind of dark and fucked up stuff at that age but i got really focused on horror so 
that was the period of time where I was like desperately trying to convince the guy at Hollywood video to rent me Dr. Giggles. I was not trying to watch basic instinct. I think, I think that I probably wasn't ready for the erotic nineties at that point. And I have a big blank spot. Actually. I, I just started, I've been hoarding episodes, but I'm a huge fan of um, Karina Longworth's podcast. I must remember this. And she just started doing erotic nineties and so my plan is to listen and then watch because I think that there are a lot of movies that, that I've just never seen that fall into that category. Absolutely. And yeah, there's no better person to, to hold our hand through that than, uh, than Karina Longworth, who she came on for Basic Instinct. So we talked with her about that. But I, I, I do think that um, it's interesting because you're, you're reading Stephen King around this time too, right? Like this is, so yeah. this is your, like, what I think is so fascinating about that is I'm not reading that stuff because I'm a big coward baby person and so I, I I'm not watching horror movies and I'm not reading Stephen King um, and it's not to say that I watched all of these erotic films because like I wasn't really doing that either but there is this subtext to all of those horror movies that is like pretty deeply twisted sexual stuff going on in all of those things which I think is interesting that you were like I'll I'll, I'll do this but I won't do the stuff that's terrestrial no, I mean, and yeah, there's a lot of very graphic sex in Stephen King novels. Yes. I yeah. think, and maybe I, and again, I don't mean to be gender normative, but I feel like all the all the middle school girls I knew were passing back and forth books. You know, you were either surreptitiously reading Stephen King because if your parents didn't read Stephen King, which mine didn't, they had absolutely no clue right. there was as much sex in it as there was. But I think that at that age, I wasn't ready for anything other than like a very internal private experience of these things. And watching something on screen automatically makes it feel a little bit more of an external experience. And so, yeah, you know, we were passing, I don't know if you guys ever read um, 15 by Judy Bloom, but that was a big one. Did you read that, Emily? Uh, I did. I did. Like I, I, uh, what uh, my experience of all of this was calling each other on the phone to read the sexy parts of the Bible. I think my wife also had that experience. So that's where I grew up. <laughs> Can I, uh, I, I gotta ask, there are sexy parts of the Bible. Oh, Phil, I'm going to call <laughs> you up tonight. I'm going to read you some sexy parts from the Bible. Please, no. please don't. You got to read the song of Solomon, Phil. Come on. <laughs> like to party line into this conversation i'll just listen <laughs> but I, I i mean i do think it is just i i just think it's interesting that we're around the same age as all this stuff is kind of out there and obviously I mean, my mother would have let me watch literally anything so it was not that was not really an issue for me in terms of that i there wasn't a drive i think is ultimately what i think we're both saying like we're both around 11 12 years old and like you know these thoughts are in our heads but like I didn't feel the real push to watch these things no I also think that you know what what is a common thread amongst most of these movies whether it's basic instinct or poison ivy is that they they were thrillers yes thus the sexy stuff was also scary stuff and I think that when you're just sort of like burgeoning into your teenage years and your like you can't quite handle sex and scary like sex in 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 and of itself was already vaguely terrifying incredibly intriguing but a little scary 
And so I think I didn't need anyone to make it scarier at that point. <laughs> Plus, I, oh my God, I do remember we sat down very misguidedly. Um, I will, I, okay, I have two, two quick yes, stories please. and then I know we probably have to, to yep. end this yep. podcast. But one was we actually sat down very misguidedly as a family to watch Pretty Woman, which is actually, you know, sort of sexually tame, despite the fact that it is literally the story of a sex worker. But I remember there's the, the I'm a safety girl scene. She's like, I got blue, I got green, whatever. And my brother, so this would have been what? It came out in 1990. So I would have been, and of course we watched it on, on VHS at home. So this had to be like a year later. So I would have been 11 and my brother would have been nine. And I remember he said, what are those? And my parents hit pause. No. Said, oh God. Oh no. This is a nightmare. This is an actual nightmare come to life. And so they were trying to explain what condoms were. And I was like, I'm never, ever watching an R-rated movie with my parents again. So that was a little traumatizing. And uh-huh. then in, this would have been ninety. Four, because I very distinctly remember it was a week after Kurt Cobain died. So I can actually pinpoint this as like April, May, April 94. Yeah. And again, it was, I think just a very misleading set of trailers that inspired my mom to take myself, Allison, I think it was Jill Norton and Monica to see threesome in the theater, which did not go well. That was because my mom was there and actually I think most of us were on board but Allison who was a very good girl um, covered her ears and closed her eyes and said I'm not allowed to be here I'm not allowed to see this and we had to leave the theater I th- it sounds like Allison and I would have gotten along she sounds like Mike <laughs> like that's that was me at that Emily, point I, I actually can't believe you have not met Allison yet and you certainly will at some oh, point you're, yeah uh, you and oh, yeah. Allison are coming on for singles uh at some point in the future so that's happening um so that is the most allison and adorable thing i've ever heard in my life closing closing her eyes and saying i'm not supposed to be here i'm not supposed to be here is incredible (laughs) 14 grow the fuck (laughs) (laughs) um Listen, this was an absolute joy, as it always is whenever you're on this podcast. I'm so happy that we all went on this journey with Joseph and Shannon together. It was it was an absolute blast. Do you, do you have any do you have anything you want to plug, Ashley? Do you have anything in, that you're you're interested in sending the people to? I mean, I I know what probably is going to pop into your brain, but if you have other stuff, you know that you're up to. Um, no, very single minded right now. <laughs> I wonder why. I did not have a lot of time to do anything else, including having a life. But, oh, okay, here is an absolutely shameless plug. This yeah. is ridiculous, and I'm, I'm pre-embarrassed that I'm going to I love – I know it's about to happen, and it's going to be great. I So we found out yesterday that we were actually nominated for two MTV Movie and TV Awards. Hey. Which I think I might – I shouldn't say this. This, is, I, this will bite me in the ass. But I think I might have gotten slightly more excited than when we were nominated for the Emmy last year. <laughs> Because I am a teen, I am a '90s teen. Like I, I was like, "Holy shit!" We were finally recognized by the MTV establishment. <laughs> Can I just say, so when you reached out to, uh, we're on a, a group chain, um, you know, we're like, we were nominated for MTV, whatever. Um, I obviously immediately went to vote for you, and I was just like, I would love nothing more than for Ashley to have 
one of their golden popcorn containers. And to be very clear, we don't have a shot in hell of winning this thing. Like, I am so you know. aware of that. No, I know. I just... But so I am I am shamelessly trying to convince everyone I know to vote. And I fucked up the voting yesterday. I tried to vote for myself. And I did not realize that you get a certain number of votes, but you can use them as much as you want for any one thing. So I voted for ourselves once, and then I hit submit, and then it wouldn't let me vote more for myself. And I was like, no! So, But I assume that this is how one wins an MTV award, is that they convince all of their middle-aged yep. friends to vote. <laughs> <laughs> times. We're, we're gonna assemble the stan army yep it's gonna happen yep. it's i, uh, I it's feel good about this and yep. every time i see you from now on you're gonna haul that golden popcorn out and just oh, slam I, it down on the table yeah. I will carry it with me anywhere i go no to be clear we're not going to win this one but <laughs> i'm i'm very very charmed to have been nominated it made me very happy and so if if anyone is listening and watches the show yellow jackets and enjoys it which, incidentally, I made the profound mistake last night at 2 a.m. of looking at IMDb comments. Don't and do that. that's not a good thing to do. And it made me that feel sad. And bad um, First of all, people love your show because your show is great. Um, it is, if you're not watching Yellow Jackets, I don't know what you're doing. Um, it is a tremendous show. Season two is airing as we speak. Um, people should, I don't know, sign up for Paramount Plus with Showtime or something like that. Plus, which I think personally they should rethink as um, as a nomenclature, but uh, it's where we are. We are on Plus. Plus. We're on Paramount Plus with Showtime, which rolls off the tongue. Uh, but you can watch it almost anywhere. You can watch it on Amazon. There are add-ons everywhere. I think that if you get the show, if you already are inclined to have Paramount which I assume that you are because you watch the challenge, like like a red-blooded American, um, then I think it costs an extra dollar to add Showtime. Um, they're also constantly running, you know, little specials and whatnot. But um, that is where we are. And uh, yeah, if you feel so inclined, watch. And then if you feel even more inclined, vote for us for the MTV. <laughs> <laughs> this is so incredible. Humiliated. So humiliated. But you know what? I did it. I did it. You should not be humiliated. I would do exactly the same thing. Uh, honestly, everyone should be watching the show. It is tremendous. It is always a blast to have you on. You're the best. And can't wait to talk uh, singles with you and Echo. To talk about how big they are in Belgium. <laughs> can't wait to talk about Citizen Dick. Have you seen singles, Emily? Uh, I think so. I'll have Cameron to. There's a bunch of movies around that yeah. time that are all about like people in their 20s, and I get them yes. all mixed up. So yes. I think Singles so. Singles is very much so. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much, Ashley. You're the best. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.